This is InsureTech Radio, episode number five, with me, Connor Sweetman. Our guest this week is Barbara Schoenhofer. Barbara Schoenhofer is the founder of Schoenhofer, an executive recruitment firm that specializes in the insurance industry. Barbara founded the business 35 years ago and has worked with many, many large insurance organizations and helped them to hire board, CEO and other C-suite level positions. She's also the founder of the Insurance Supper Club, which is a global network of female executives working in insurance. Last year, she was awarded with an MBE for Services to Women in Business So I was really excited to talk to Barbara about the intersection of technology and insurance and people, how that affects the workforce, but also how it affects all of us as individuals. Please enjoy this conversation with Barbara Schoenhofer. Barbara, you're very welcome to InsureTech Radio. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. So the... The theme, I think, of this episode uh, with you and this conversation with you is going to be about change and various types of change and how we deal with it. But specifically for our audience, we're going to be we're, we're thinking a lot about technology and how that's going to change our industry. Um, but also with your expertise, you know a lot about how diversity can uh, change an industry and how it is changing our industry. Um, do you think they're two separate issues or are they interrelated or what, what's your take on that? They're completely interrelated because technology uh, has allowed us to have different working patterns. And actually, because of technology and the internet particularly, the world is changing much more rapidly. So when you look into history and you look into the Industrial Revolution and then flight and the things that happened before technology, there was a big time span generational between changes. With the internet, we've already seen with science, for instance, so research, you can do research on the internet and you can get millions of people worldwide doing research for you and running it 24 hours. So there's no longer the need for, for the time issue and everything is concertinary. Well, and what do you think that means for the insurance sector specifically? I think it means that we have to, uh, and we are, thinking of things differently. And, for instance, how Brexit is being dealt with by the British government has left business leaders, particularly in the financial sector and insurance, over the last 18 months to two years, having to make decisions without having full knowledge or disclosure um, and not knowing what the possible outcomes might be. So having to be much more agile and uh, entrepreneurial in their thoughts um, from an industry that's been very analytical and traditional. Mm. And what what kind of conversations are you having with, say, your clients um, at your business? The conversations we're having, um, particularly from the London market, which has been a very traditional male-run club, if you like, um, 
we've been fortunate in two things that have happened. One is the Davis report, Mervyn Davis, who wrote about the lack of women on boards generally, um, which brought an imperative in for companies to start to look at how they could diversify their boards. Um, And then the second thing has been the gender pay gap and the publishing of the gender pay gap and companies having uh, over a certain size to publish where they are on the gender pay gap. That's thrown up all sorts of questions for business leaders. So the discussions I'm having with business leaders are around gender equity. How are we possibly going to get there unless we put proactive actions in place that help businesses to not just attract diverse workforces and attract young people in, to the industry, but to retain uh, women, particularly midway through their careers, so that we have more choice at senior levels and more women can become business leaders. And is there a trend of people, uh, women, leaving the industry mid-career? Huge. Really? Uh, what, what kind of statistics? We have, a, we have an absolute drain of talent from the industry, from females leaving when they reach the age of about 28. That early? Yes. And what drives that? It, I think that generally it's thought that it's related to maternity. That is part of the issue, but it's only a part of the issue. What the young, what I'm observing and what the younger women are telling me, it's because they look up and they see the challenges ahead. And they felt when they came into the industry that they would have equal chances. And by the time they've been in the industry for a few years... Those, they feel those chances are melting away from them. And that's because they're looking up and seeing that uh, the men are in key positions and are still being promoted into the key positions and they don't see how they can make inroads. And I was listening uh, to a talk that you did with uh, the MGA Association. You're on a panel discussion and you mentioned something quite interesting. You said that uh, women are promoted on the basis of what they uh, have done, whereas men are generally promoted on the basis of what they could do, yes. uh, their potential. Like, is that does is that relate to what you've just said, or could you maybe elaborate on that a bit? I think it does. Yeah. I think it's a very complex issue. It's not men's fault that the uh, the world has developed the way it has, but in the London market, we have an opportunity to lead in the rest of the world about what we do about it, and. Interestingly, I've been in uh, talent advisory and executive search for many, many years now. And I've interviewed men and women. And men and women always interview differently. Can you give me some specifics? Uh, A woman will tend to say we when she's describing her experience instead of I. So I ask specifically what do you mean by we? Who was involved in the team? Who led it? What couldn't have happened if you weren't there? And when I interview a man, he will nine times out of ten say I. I did this. I did that. And then I have to explore with them, well, who was the we and I? So it's quite interesting, the dynamics Women will, if you give them, and this is absolutely researched and it's universal, and I can absolutely state that this happens, that if you give a woman a job description, 
at whatever level she is, she will tell you the three things she can't do on that job description. The man will look at the job description and know that he can do three things and tell you he can do it. It's yeah. just a fundamental so, thing. Yeah, I've heard that said before, but it's interesting. But it's only, you know, some tummy in the pub or something. Yes. So it's interesting hearing it from, you know, a recruitment professional uh, that's seen that over, you know, decades of experience. Uh, wow. Um, and like, so what advice do you give to female candidates, say, uh, um when they're going for roles that you're working on? It's very interesting because women want to be very truthful. So they want to explain what they can't do as well as, well as what yeah. they can do. And I don't advocate being other than truthful, but there is a different way you can express it. If you're expressing it to a director who's likely to give you a promotional job, who hears things in a different way. So you have to think of that when you're delivering the message. And if somebody's used to hearing something in a certain way, you've got to be able to state your case in a way they can hear it. Yeah. So there are different ways that you can do it, but it's about courage. Women know they're competent and capable, but they have to have courage to say, I can do it. I can do it. Mm. It's very powerful. Yeah, it's a very powerful word as well, courage. Because I was thinking about the the genesis of Supper Club, and I don't maybe you can tell me the genesis story. But I was I was just thinking to myself that must have taken a lot of courage to kind of to, to step out from the pack and say, "Follow me." You know, this is what we should do, and then to lead, uh, in, particularly in the insurance industry, which is you know very male dominated. Mm. So, like, can you tell me a bit more about the genesis? story of the supper club and maybe how you were feeling at the time i think probably foolhardy rather <laughs> than courage um, i'm a person that when i was born i came out of the womb asking my mother why <laughs> um, and so i was i'm a very curious person when i set up my own business in executive search which was probably about 12 years ago one of my co-directors uh, is gay guy. He's no longer in the business, but um, he's retired now. And what we found is that the gay community throughout the world was extremely supportive of us. And they weren't out at that time in the insurance industry. It was too difficult. And so I got to know who they were. And when I we set up the business, I thought, well, I'm a woman. I'm in a very male-dominated market here. It's been very challenging for me to build my reputation and brand in this market. So there must be other women who are feeling that isolation. So I went round and I spoke to a number of the senior women. There were about 12 of them that were identifiable in the London market. And we all got together for dinner. And it all developed from there. And we said 12. So... Roughly, I'm sure it's a very small number, but what's that as a percentage, say, of their peers, you know, the, the other male leaders, would you have said at the time? Well, when we started off our business, we had a small database of about 6,000. So it's 12 out of 6,000. I managed to find 5,000 women by the time our database had grown to 35,000. Wow, so now you're about one-seventh. Yes. So I so that is the only way I can judge it. Yeah. 
because it's very difficult to get all the stats that are out there. Yeah, yeah. So, so what? Tell me the the genesis of the Supper Club. Well, basically, we started off with finding all the women in the market, and we did cliched things like having shopping evenings, etc., uh, which we wouldn't dream of doing now. Um, but we got five thousand women together, and then we realised that the senior women we had to get to know each other. And what I found, and I've found this since around. Uh, all the cities that I visit in the world, that the women know of each other, but they don't actually know each other. Well, And so if you get the senior, and that's because we've all been striving for our careers over many years and have got on with the job, as women do, working hard, and we haven't thought about connecting with each other. Fundamentally, men make deep, meaningful network relationships. Okay, with a small number of people. Women tend to make broader networks, but don't get to know each other very well, like our male peers do. And we've recognized this now in Supper Club over the last 10 years and have now there are 600 of us who are getting to know each other very well indeed. It's a business club. So we help each other in business. And once we've established our firm relationships, then we invite the men in. We invite men to everything that we do. Once we've got those relationships, it takes several times, several meetings to build those relationships because relationships take a long time to grow and mature. And we're on the back foot here. We're starting off late in the game. Yeah, and isn't it ironic that, you know, insurance was, you know, it is still very much a relationship business, but you're saying that 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 was a fundamental challenge for for women, or it, is it still a fundamental challenge for women? Yes. Okay. Because the the power of network is important if you are going to take control of your career. Career a career is a personal journey, and you have to have ownership of it. And you can be the most fantastic, uh, capable person in the world. But if you're doing that in isolation, in a bubble, then nobody's going to know about it. So whether you like it or not, you have to have a strategy in order to engage people to understand who you are. And that's whatever job you do. So what's what's the first step then? Say if someone is uncomfortable with that idea of networking, um, they've been a lone wolf for a while. Um, what is the first step? The first step is to know who you are. And, you know, personal brand is a really important thing. So I'm not talking about the way you dress. I'm talking about who you fundamentally are as a person, what's unique about you, because every human being has a combination of skills, experience and behaviors that make them unique so i always say to somebody when they come in and they talk to me about i've been 10 years in insurance or five years or 20 years or whatever it is i'm an insurance professional you know i do this job or that job this is my experience i say yes but who are you that doesn't tell me who you are i can read that on your cv so the first thing is to be able to develop an elevator speech that you would want to give to somebody who didn't know you to get a few key messages across, just maybe three, very, very quickly. What would you say to them? 
It's a challenging question. So that is fundamentally where you start. So you have to know what sort of person I am, what sort of colleague I am, what uh, is my impact on the individuals, the teams, the business I work with? What do I feel proud of? What wouldn't happen without me at the table? What happens after I've left the table? Because I was there when I moved department or I moved job. So really understanding your core values, what you bring to the table, your colleagues, what you can do for a business and who you are ethically. What's your ethical code? And that's going to be really important with AI. Tell tell me more about that. Well, we're seeing the big technology giants now and coming under scrutiny because of what they're publishing. I think that the tsunami of change that interconnectivity, artificial intelligence and technology brings us is making it a very complex world going forward. And there are many things that we haven't thought of that we're going to have to think of. Um, And so really the whole, your stance on it is really important. What you believe, what you think is right. Do you think it's right, for instance, that an underwriting business through algorithms should be manipulating human behaviour? And how how do you think that that could happen? How would uh, would it? We were already seeing it happen. I mean, we're seeing it happening outside the industry in terms of political manoeuvrings behind the scenes with an analytics company in Cambridge selling data. Um, And I think that there's some alarming trends uh, going on. Um, I was reading one uh, recently. I can't remember who the company was, but... uh, Somebody in my network had pointed out that there was a, a, an insurance company planning on looking at how people behave and starting to manipulate those people through through the messaging they're giving. And is the manipulation for for what purpose? Is it marketing to get, acquire more customers, or is it from underwriting? It's to, you know? it's, it's really both. It's to yeah. understand more. And to get more customers, uh, in a, in and, and reach people more broadly that you know will buy your products. You, what, what you have to, we all have to decide is where the ethics, where's the line in all of that, before you start manipulating. Yeah. So, so to me, you have to decide where you are in all of that. What you think is appropriate and what isn't. Is it all about the dollar? Um, and, you know, I was talking about three or four years ago now to a campus, a group of um, uh, people who were uh, mature students at a campus in, in New York. Um, and the questions they were asking me were about the impact of what they might do in their jobs on, for instance, the third world or, you know, a tribe in Africa or somewhere in China. They want to understand the impacts. And this is what technology and the web has given us. It's that curious people all around the world can now talk to each other and understand what's going on and are beginning to question it. 
So, for instance, you're seeing young scientists now. There was a young man in Wales who worked out um, how he could make a plastic hand which worked through clever technology, which costs about 40 quid. And he actually didn't patent it. He gave it to the third world. So the amputees could very cheaply start to get artificial limbs. That's what the sharing economy, the collaborations that are going on. Mm. So it's complex and you have to decide, coming back to your elevator speech, who you are in all of that. It's up to you, nobody else. It's a lot to fit into an elevator (laughs) Well, I think the thing is, is to really look at however young you are, what you've done at school, what you've done at university, what you've done in your job, and what is it about you that adds value Mm. around the table. And once you understand that and can articulate it, you you can get your elevated speech, then everything else comes after that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that in talking about this, we're talking more about... um, softer kind of ideas and i hate using that term soft because i I prefer i prefer to think it's kind of fundamental because you're talking about the essence of a person as opposed to you know the letters after your name the qualifications the number of years experience and i'm just wondering so say that person has you know they've decided who they are they know what the elevator pitch is but maybe they're missing certain skills or um or experiences to help them in this new world driven by technology. Well, how would you advise those people? Well, I think the thing is, that's all of us. It is, you know, yeah, I learn I learn things every day. Mm. And uh, I set out to, as indeed you, from our earlier conversation, have done. And what knowing who you are helps you to know if you're on the right career trajectory. Yeah. And if you're not, you need to explore what trajectory you want to go on. Yeah. So if you're an underwriter, do you really want to be an underwriter? Or do you want to be in operations? Or do you want to be in IT or marketing? Yeah. Uh, if you're a broker, do you really want to be a broker? Or do you want to be in something else? So I think the thing is that you need to understand that. Once you understand that, then you can build a strategy to reach your career aspirations and be the best you can possibly be. And you can do that in uncertainty because you're in control of two things, two things only, what goes on in your head and what comes out of your mouth. And actually, when you start thinking about that, then that's when you you really start to take control. Because I can choose whether to react to something or wait for 24 hours. And as you get older and more mature in your career, you realise it's better sometimes to do nothing and just wait. Um, and I think that we can we can really take charge of who we are and have a strategy and a plan and execute that plan. And if that means going off and requalifying, that's what you have to do. You have to embark on that. The other thing that you need to do is you need to have your connections. And the best way to test whether you're on the right trajectory and or whether you're mad in your aspirations is to go and speak to your network. And you can divide your network into three groups, A, B and C, for instance. 
And you can say, okay, the C people are the people who are friends. They're mentors, if you like. They're the people who can help me. And you go and see those people and you can say, look, I'm thinking of doing this and these are the reasons why. This is who I believe I am. What do you think? Because love, people love being asked and they will tell you what they think. And then your your look at your what you're doing and your your tweak it and refine it. And then you can go to the B people. The B people are the influencers, the people that the A people who can give you jobs or career promotions are speaking to. Mm. And you can say exactly the same to them. Look, I'm, can I come and have a coffee with you? Can I talk to you about myself? This is what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think? And they will give you their thoughts as well. What you are doing when you're speaking to the C's and B's is you're socialising who you are rather than the perception of who you are. And then by the time you get in front of a promotion or a hiring director, you've got a pretty damn good idea of who you are and what you have to offer. They can check out with their networks and hear this positive story about you puts you in a much stronger position. Yeah, and I suppose the other, uh, and the opposite of that, I suppose, is going straight for those hiring managers, you know, sending your CVs out, you know. Uh, you can do that. I like, uh, it's the hare and the tortoise. I yeah. like to be the tortoise. I mm. like to have the plan in place and mm. systematically go through the plan because then you're not all over the place. And one of the things that I find as an executive search consultant is many people come and see me, and often they're quite senior people. I also meet many uh, more junior people who are aspiring in their careers. But uh, a lot of the time I meet senior people, and they are not clear where they're going and what they're doing and why. And the people who come in, who've sought it through and have a plan, are very impressive. Not many have. Because people are so busy with their careers and doing what they and being on a course, they haven't thought about it yeah. until it comes to a moment where they want to change what they're doing. And that may be going from executive to non-executive, or it may be taking a step up or changing a direction in the career. Very few people will have really looked closely and worked on themselves and have a plan. Yeah, it's probably something I am guilty of. Like when I got into insurance, I just started doing the ACII, you know, and that was my main goal for a couple of years. And then, you know, you get into a role and you're a junior underwriter. Okay, I know I want to be underwriter and senior underwriter. You want to work, work your way up. But it does get to a point, like when, when you start ticking them off, you're just like, well, okay, now what? I might, if there is no next obvious thing, then it, then you really start questioning question yourself well i think there'll be a lot of not obvious things going yeah. forward uh you know we've already talked about ai and technology and the impact and the impact is we don't even understand i mean you begin to get into cyber <laughs> and you know life is changing and changing very rapidly and so we have to know who we are we have to be clear about our networks because we're not an island and we have to know what the likely career paths coming may look like and we're going to have to take a leap of faith into into the dark and it's like talking about 
virtual working. And, uh, you know, I said at dinner last night, we were, we were discussing under Chatham House rules. So, you know, I obviously won't divulge who said what. But basically, virtual working is about trust. It's about being agile. It's about embracing technology. Um, and it's about uh, not um, employers not falling into the trap of the cost of presenteeism as opposed to absenteeism. So we are going to all start looking at working in a completely different way and even in the service industry. And of course, there are great fears about how you gel a team together, how you uh, manage diverse teams and be more inclusive, how you um, help uh, transfer knowledge if you're not doing that face-to-face. And of course, these things all have to be thought through very clearly, and it will lead to a different style of leadership from, if you like, the autocratic top-down to potentially more from a hero, follow me directional leadership to a much more coaching, encouraging um, style of leadership, which of course will also be, leadership will also be impacted with women staying in the industry and working their way throughout organisations to get into key roles will impact how we look at things and how we do things going forward in a significant way with their male colleagues. And it will empower male colleagues to think differently, frankly. And like innovation uh, is a bit of a buzzword now in insurance in that there are people who are appointed to roles like head of innovation, uh, head of uh, digital, all this kind of stuff. Uh, And they're board level uh, appointments a lot of the time. Have you been involved in recruiting for those roles and what are companies looking for uh, in those types of people? They're looking for what they don't know. So, so, I mean, they don't know what they're looking for? No, or? they do know what they look... Well, they do know what they're looking for, and it's usually not IT techy. Okay. It's much more around strategy, what's going out on, on outside in other industries that we can learn from, and what are the collaborations and partnerships we should be making at this stage. You know, you've got insurance companies with big capital, um, how are they going to encourage inclubation of innovation and creativity? How are they going to manage that and do that? And then you've got entrepreneurs who leave the big capital or leave the corporations and go and set off a bit like, mm. uh, you know, the ice cream guys in the garage. Um, how far can they grow a business before it goes back into the big capital. Yeah, yeah, because you see that a lot with insure tech firms is they set up uh, as, um, or they need the insurers or reinsurers as partners in order to provide the capital usually. Yes. So how are you going to attract those people um, to, to the industry in order to have their innovation and creativity, but not put them in the straight jacket of the industry? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a funny problem, yeah, because I suppose, 
I suppose, yeah, like traditional, like underwriting companies are traditionally conservative. I suppose that, you know, to be a successful underwriting company, you do need a level of conservatism because you don't want to just write any risk for without information. So it is a very big cultural change, I think, to uh, to get to that point. Well, I think we need to look at, you know, the underwriting of the future. I don't mm. think it's going to be as we as we do it today. The same with claims. Yeah. I think there will be different skills that come into that. You know, algorithms have a lot to do with everything now. So it's the interpretation, isn't it? Mm. So how do you interpret all this information that's coming at you? Big data, the cloud, everything. How do you how do you use that information in an intelligent and smart way? And those are the skills that we need people to come and help and talk to us about so that we can learn, you know, a different approach and a different way of thinking. And it's exactly the same with agile working. How do we make this work in a service industry? Yeah. And, you know, is it a question of it cannot work or let's look at things in a different way? And what I've always found in my work life, which goes back 40 years now, is that you can incubation of something or doing something in a small area and it's successful, you can roll that out to big corporates. So how do big corporates incubate all these ideas and then roll it out because it works? Yeah, like you see a lot of businesses now have uh, in-house incubation centres or even in some cases they're setting up different entities to be... Tech labs. Yeah, exactly, and even their own venture capital uh, arms absolutely and i think that that we're going to see more and more of that so the whole workplace is changing and a lot of that is driven by the millennial and and the next generation after that coming up because they don't they they're looking at things in a different way they don't want to work in the way that we work the jobs are changing i mean we can't get back to you know, the industry that we used to have. We have to look at the next Mm. step in everything. And, you know, that means thinking outside the box and thinking uh, and and having these discussions. It's really important Mm. to have the discussions because people are clever and able and need to communicate this with each other. Yeah, and that's the point. Like, generally, like, it's amazing how... uh, how um, people's IQ can raise uh, the more responsibility and access you give yeah. them, you know? Well, if you look at some of the entrepreneurs in the city, they are not academics. Mm. And we have to embrace the fact that actually, if you just go for first-class degree graduates, which some of the law firms have done in the past, is that you get, again, back into that very narrow opinion about everything. And I can give you an example of my husband who is, you know, got a high IQ, he's an IT geek, he's a, he's a finance um, guy, so he's a qualified accountant. And, you know, he gets into the weeds and he can, he spends hours in the computer, we can fly to the moon and back from our house. And I will go, I hear him cussing and swearing and I go in and he's hit a problem. And I say, have you tried this or that? He said, well, you don't know anything about technology. I said, no, but if you tried this or that, would it work? So he said, oh, goodness sake, I'll try it. And then it works. And he said, how do you do that? And that's what I mean about diversity. It's because 
The idiot like me in the corner can spot something that somebody's into the details can't spot. Mm. And so you need that sort of thinking around a, a leadership table or around a team table or around an executive team. You need somebody to say, hey, guys, yeah. <laughs> have you thought of this? Yeah, and it's actually a great feeling. You know, well, personally, I find it brilliant when I'm surprised by anything. I'm like, geez, I didn't know that. Or, you know, I, I find I imagine having more of those kind of aha moments. I think it just makes it, it makes us all better, you know. Absolutely. And um, it, it is more challenging. And the other thing that you haven't asked me about, which I think is a very interesting t- subject, is how men are feeling at the moment. Mm. Because there's a lot of emphasis coming out of the London market. And I think we're now leading the way in having to have interventions and actions to get more women to stay in the market. Um, and reach senior positions. And men have been saying to me, but you know, I've got three kids, I'm a main breadwinner, I'm not going to get promotion if I'm up against a woman. And I say, look, women have had to up their game tremendously. We've worked very, very hard. And actually, we are now a force to be reckoned with. So rather than thinking that way, as a man, think about what can I do? How can I understand myself better? See where my add value is. How do I upskill? How do I um, uh, create more of my own personal brand? So what I say is equal to men. You can do it as well. It means we all have to up our game. Yeah, like those questions you suggested um for for getting to know yourself if yes. you're going if you're embarking on this journey they apply just as much to men as they do to women yes absolutely and of course you know getting mentors getting coaches getting sponsors and knowing the difference between them is vital what is the difference between them a sponsor is somebody who will get to know you and will believe in you and we'll socialize who you are. So if a promotion comes up or, uh, you know, somebody's talking about you in a business, they will be able to say, ah, oh, well, did you know? Well, have you thought about Connor for this? Mm. And everyone's saying, why would we th- look at Connor? Isn't he too young? Has he not got the right experience? And that person can say, well, do you know he's done this, that and the other? And by the way, he runs a podcast. <laughs> so... Uh, and people won't know that. Mm. So you have to find a sponsor who is an influencer, mm. somebody who is going to socialize who you are, believe in you and promote you. So it's usually for a woman, it's usually a ma- male sponsor they need. Um, and that's because the males in our industry are in the most influential positions at the moment. Mm. For a mentor, you need someone who, who gets it, who understands what you're likely to face and knows what you don't know you don't know yet, okay? Who can say, I advise you. This is what I would do if I was you, okay? So, for instance, for a woman, it's quite likely she needs a male, a female mentor, somebody who understands the path, who's trod that path, and has come across the hiccups that they didn't expect when they first came into the industry. So, and then you've got a coach, and a coach is somebody who holds the mirror up and gets you to find out the answers that are buried in you. 
That's the difference. Very good. Yeah, I've had some experience with working with coaches over the years, both in work and outside work, and it's extremely valuable. I found them really like uh, just it's uncomfortable sometimes. Um, they, they 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 all have a great way. Or the good ones have a great way of asking you a question to just completely humbles you and makes you really kind of look inwards and uh, and uh, think think about the answer. Look, it comes back to I control two things, mm. what I think and what comes out of my mouth. Mm. And actually, it's very uncomfortable if you get a good coach. Yeah. I have a business coach. I've always had mentors, sponsors and coaches. And it's been very challenging for me because I'm always right, or so my husband says. <laughs> and he says, if Barbara's not right, she makes it right. Um, but but basically, it's very hard when you when the penny drops that how people behave around you is quite often down to you, not, not to them. Yeah. And once you get that and understand it, it fundamentally alters how you look at things. Yeah, it's like putting on a different lens. Absolutely. And people like me may react like me, but there are many, many people who aren't like me who react completely differently. So if I'm dealing with a client who gets distressed or or angry about something, uh, I no longer worry about me, I worry about them. So I try to find out what is causing that. And that's, that works exactly the same with my family. You know, my mother, who sadly lost last year, she was 92. Wow. Um, she, when she got angry, she shouted. Or when she got frightened, she shouted. And she would shout at me. And I'd say, Mum, you're shouting at me. And she said, no, I'm not. <laughs> but it was always a reason behind it. It was nothing to do with how she was feeling about me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and once you realise that, it makes you look at the world in a different way. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about uh, unconscious bias. And uh, I wanted to share a story with you of when I was guilty of it myself and I was completely oblivious to it. Uh, so about two or three, two, about two and a half years ago, I started uh, doing a different podcast. And um, it took a lot for me to actually put myself out there because it's the first time I'd published any, anything and said, oh, look at me, look at what I'm doing or whatever. And... Um, so anyway, of course, very few people listen to it in the end, <laughs> but uh, I had published like four or five episodes and a friend, a female friend of mine emailed me out of the blue. I hadn't spoken to her much. We were more friends in uh, secondary school. She'd been living abroad the last couple of years and she said, congratulations on what you're doing, but five episodes in and it's all men. Like, and I was just, I was completely floored by it because I'd never, I'd never thought about it in a million years. I just... I reached out to the people I, I I was interested in, but no, in fact, I was guilty of unconscious bias, and I was just wondering, like, like how how do you? Uh, I suppose what advice do you have for for men? How do you navigate that when you you literally are unconscious of it? Yes, I'm much more aware of it now, seeing as that that was well. The first thing is awareness. Yeah, because we have unconscious bias that can actually protect us. Yeah. Okay, so it's not, it's a human thing. It's the recognizing of it. Okay, and once you recognize it, then you can do something about it. So, for instance, if you suddenly become aware 
as I've pointed out to some journalists, that all their panels are men and they say there's, but there are only six women out there and we've asked them all and they can't do it. And I say, well, I've got 600 women in my network at senior level. So if you're having that trouble, come to me. Mm. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? Yeah, Yeah. And we will find. I think that it's just being aware of it. Look, we can't make up the numbers. We can't say that there are a huge number of women in senior positions in the insurance industry because they're not. Mm. So we, the best thing to do is be transparent and recognise and understand where we can be influential and where we can change the way we approach things. And it's awareness. Awareness comes from talking and from listening, doesn't it? It's from exchanges like this. We all have unconscious bias, Mm. men and women. When you look at how long it takes to change attitudes and you look at some of the practices that go on in the world, which seem to us barbaric, um, you know, female genital mutilation, for instance, you know, it's rife in places around the world that you wouldn't think it would be rife, including in the UK, okay? And so what we have to do is to talk about it and be aware, but it takes literally, generationally, it takes hundreds of years to change these things. When you look at the indoctrination that we've had, then our blueprints change. So men and women may have started out in the Garden of Eden the same. They may have done But the thousands and thousands of years of indoctrination have changed our blueprints. So we act in different ways and we have different prejudices because of that. It's just recognizing that. And we can't change it. It's like you can't change how you feel inside, but you can recognize it. You can say, oh, it's that old thing and you can ignore it. Mm. That's great advice. Um, We'll wrap up. But do you have any parting words for our listeners, any advice, recommendations? Um, Yes, I have. I think that the insurance profession is a very exciting place to be in. And out of all financial services, I think it's the more noble profession. And why I think that is, it's about protection. It's about protection of people, protection of possessions, protection of governments. We're in a unique position And because of that, we should be reaching out to broader society and we should be representing broader society in all our workplaces. And I think that the next generation, I have great hope that they will take those values, embrace them and really take the industry forward in a new light with strong ethic. That's great. Great way to end. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Cheers.